0: These policies were not targeted, so in that sense, there was some inefficiency from an economic point of view. Do we have a time bomb in our hand? I mean, did we did something wrong in the sense that we just delayed
1: bankruptcies? March 2021 marks a strange anniversary for most of us. It represents one full year of lockdowns, social isolation, wearing a mask, and hunting for toilet paper. I'm your host, Carly Sheridan, and in today's episode of Women in Economics, we'll be commemorating this unusual anniversary by looking at the economic policies that helped companies survive this past year and explore the case for a global approach to vaccinations. The impact that COVID-19 has had on businesses has varied hugely. Many of us watched as some of our favorite local businesses made the tough decision to close down for good. On the other hand, the stock market, which did suffer temporarily last March, bounced back so swiftly and continues to break record gains. So why did some companies flounder while the market seemed to soar? Today, I'll be speaking with economist Shebnam Kalemli-Ushan to get some answers. A huge part of her work and research has been focused on economic growth and productivity, looking at things like capital flow, macroeconomic fluctuations, and international finance, More recently, she's examined the impact COVID-19 has had on emerging markets and business failures worldwide. By examining different data sets and conducting comparative analyses, she can help us not only identify what worked during this pandemic, but also help us be better prepared for the next one too. For the sake of this conversation, we'll be looking exclusively at small and medium-sized enterprises, or as we'll be referring to them, SMEs. And there's a reason why we'll be focusing on them. On average, SMEs account for half of all economic activity in most countries. So these aren't your ma and pa shops, but they also aren't Fortune 500s or publicly listed companies. And that last distinction matters quite a bit.
0: The technical definition of an SME might change from country to country, but they are very important firms for the aggregate economy. So, most countries, they will account somewhere between fifty to sixty five percent of aggregate employment, aggregate output in emerging markets. It can go up to seventy percent of the real economic activity. And this is exactly why these type of crisis, such as Covid, we see a disconnect between Wall Street and the main street. We see huge unemployment issues while at the same time stock markets are breaking gain after gain Um, because they are not representative of the real economy, right? SMEs are not in the stock market.
1: Because of the nature of many SMEs and the fact that many require face-to-face interactions, they were some of the hardest hit during the pandemic.
0: So COVID shock is a very sector-specific shock. It Does hit uh, services sectors much, much harder than the manufacturing sectors, right? It hits non essential sectors, any kind of service sector, and also to a certain extent, you know, wholesale and retail sectors. They hit very hard by the COVID, and um, they are going to be a large part of the aggregate economy in terms of aggregate employment and aggregate output. But at the same time, on the supply side and production side, these are also the sectors where, you know, people need to come together to work. And if uh, one person is sick or two people are sick, then the entire thing can stop, right? This is the nature of this shock. And that's why it becomes a very urgent issue to think about how to deal with this from a policy perspective.
1: We can distill the challenges faced by all companies to one little word. Money.
0: The big challenge is here the survival. Your income crashes, right? Your revenue crashes as an SME. How do you deal with that? You go to a bank and get a loan, get some sort of emergency financing to go through. This is very hard for an SME, right? I mean, even normal times, even an SME, you know, just during regular times has a hard time to get a bank loan because it requires a certain credibility and collateral on your part right? I mean, again, because they don't have access to equity markets, they are not in the stock market, and most of the SMEs don't have access to bond markets, right? Now, think about a large firm. They are going to survive because they can draw on their credit lines. They not only uh, have a very easy time to get financing, you know, from banks, they can also issue a bond, right? You know, some of these are listed companies, like you know, the hotels. So they are going to have a much easier time to get financing through banks, through bond markets, through equity markets to smooth this shock to them. Large firms, they have access to financing, they can deal with the problem in a much better way than an SME can. So that actually amplifies the problem.
1: In her paper, aptly named COVID-19 and SME failures, Kalemle Ushan and her co-authors compared the different approaches taken by different countries and then compared those data to bankruptcy rates.
0: We estimated an SME bankruptcy rate under the assumption that nobody's helping them. And that is a number of 18%. So 18% of SMEs are bankrupting in uh, 17 countries we work with on average. That's a nine percentage point increase. So you go from pretty much a non-COVID bankruptcy rate of 9% to a COVID bankruptcy rate of 18%. That's a huge number. Now, of course, uh, there has been a lot of public support in 2020. So we said, OK, uh, what did this public uh, policy support achieve? Because in pretty much all the countries, there has been tremendous amount of money given, especially to SMEs, actually, both in rich countries and also to an extent in uh, developing countries and emerging markets. These uh, benchmark estimate of nine percentage point increase in the bankruptcy rate of SMEs basically didn't happen we look at policies such as uh, loan guarantees direct uh, labor subsidies direct grants and cash transfers to smes and the bankruptcy rate under these policies is basically zero meaning you would have your regular organic normal time business cycle type of bankruptcy but you are not going to get an increase you are not going to get this 9 percentage point increase due to covid right policy support basically halted
1: that So government stepped in and the public largely supported these efforts. But some people, including some economists, have questioned whether this approach of pay now, question later will land us in hot water.
0: What does it mean for 2021? I mean, do we have a time bomb in our hand? I mean, did we did something wrong in the sense that we just delayed bankruptcies? Maybe we gave help to all the SMEs, but maybe some of them weren't worthy. Maybe we created zombie firms by giving uh, this type of very generous policy support. So if we look at that question, actually, and this is not the case. The inefficiency didn't come from giving too much money to zombie firms, to bad firms, low productive firms, but giving too much money actually to strong firms who could have survived COVID. Uh, in terms of numbers, actually, those firms got almost 5% of GDP, where other your bad guys only got like 0.5% of GDP.
1: In case you're wondering whether you heard that correctly, she did just say zombie firms. The term was first used in Japan to describe companies that were supported by Japanese banks in the early 1990s. This was during a period they refer to as the lost decade that followed the Japanese asset price bubble. Today, it applies to any firm that can operate with just enough to get by, servicing their debt but never actually paying any of it off. But the undead are not the problem here. It's really a matter of efficiency.
0: These policies were not targeted. So in that sense, there was some waste, there was some inefficiency from an economic point of view. Firms who could have survived COVID, we call them strong firms, survivor firms, they also got the money. And this is the waste part, right? But in terms of non-viable firms, ghost zombie firms, this is not a large proportion of the policy support. We could have done this in a more efficient way if we target the policy. What does it mean to target the policy? You go and find uh, firms who are viable. So basically firms who would be fine without the COVID shock. These will be restaurants, dentists, daycares, right? I mean, there is no reason why these firms should bankrupt in 2020. So if you go and find those firms who would be viable in a world with no COVID and give the money to them, give that liquidity shortfall, revenue shortfall directly to them, that would be a targeted policy. That would be the most efficient policy because you would save exactly the right firms and you would spend much less. Of course, this is not feasible. I mean, definitely politically not feasible, but also even in a practical sense, right? This is something that is going to take time. Nobody had that type of time or resources, no government. So this uh, wasn't done. I'm not criticizing governments. They did the best uh, that they can at the time, but we should learn a lesson from this. There will be more pandemics. There will be more crises of this sort in the future. So we should somehow invest in technologies now that, give us a way to identify these firms in a quick manner uh, during the crisis, right? When we try to do things very quickly so that we have less inefficiency and less waste.
1: So yes, there was some pretty major trial and error here, but Kalemle Ushan believes that governments did the best they could with the resources they had available and speed rightly trumped efficiency concerns. More importantly, lessons have been learned.
0: Generally, in terms of type of the policy, the countries that give a direct grant or cash through some sort of tax system. Those type of interventions work much better than interventions that went through banks. And uh, unfortunately, most of the interventions were of that form. Some of those uh, programs end up also being very successful, like PPP program in the US, but these took time. And so what we learned is programs done in terms of direct cash transfers, direct grants through tax system were more successful uh, because they were just quicker.
1: Is there any reason to be concerned about governments going into debt because of these programs?
0: The public debt is not a problem. Public uh, governments can easily serve this debt. But I think we also have to be careful when we generalize that. I mean, this is public debt we are talking about. The generalization of debt to corporate debt, household debt, that can be a leap of faith. We know the problems of a hugely indebted household sector, hugely indebted corporate sector. We saw this movie in 2008 and 2009 with households in the U.S. and corporates in Europe. We don't want to see that movie again. And in that sense, again, this SME issue is very important because if we look at how governments handle this crisis in terms of helping the SME, most just gave them more debt. Uh, It can be a government-backed loan, government-guaranteed loan, but it is still a loan. It has to be paid back by that SME. And what we know from my own research and also others in the corporate finance literature, uh, corporate debt is something that holds back SMEs, right? holds back investment, holds back employment, what we call that overhang. So we don't want you know, corporate sector where most of the SMEs are indebted, right? That's going to create a sluggish recovery. That's going to create a subpar investment. And it's going to hamper at the end of the day growth because SMEs are very important part of uh, growth of the economy and investment and employment. If we are a country that, you know, solve the SME bankruptcy problem by throwing more debt at this problem, we have to think about now cleaning up that debt and restructuring that debt somehow, right? So these are the things that we should be on top of in the next five years and be careful about where we are going from this point on.
1: If you happen to be or run an SME and you're wondering ways in which you can build up some resilience here, the main thing that Kalemli Ushan recommends is diversifying your financing sources.
0: I think there are things that SMEs can do. I think they should not rely on debt to finance themselves, right? I mean, of course, I know it's very hard because they are out of equity markets and bond markets just because they are small. So pretty much bank loans, bank debt is the only way they finance themselves. But I think they should watch that out. I think this comes from the desire to grow very quickly right? Every SME wants to grow. But I think that type of um, trying to do it too quickly makes them to borrow a lot, especially at historical low interest rate, because it's just cheap to borrow. I think they should resist that temptation and they should not just rely that much on debt, because I mean, debt financing, of course, cheap and easy during good times, but then during bad times, it really comes back to haunt you.
1: As I mentioned at the top of the episode, Kalemli Ushan has also been making the economic case for global vaccinations, and people have been listening. Her work on the topic has been featured in the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, BBC, Bloomberg, the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization. The list truly goes on and on.
0: The uh, economic case for global vaccinations actually very uh, simple and very intuitive. We do live in a globalized world. Uh, We are, as countries, connected to each other through trade and finance and production linkages. And this is a health crisis. No country is immune to that. As long as countries' demand and supply and production is tied to each other... Obviously, even you inoculate every citizen in your own country, your economy is not going to recover, right? As long as the other countries also achieve universal vaccinations and get rid of the pandemic. Say rich countries all vaccinate everyone and they got rid of the pandemic sometime in 2021, okay? And in U.S., this looks like the, going to be the case pretty much by summer of 2021, given the recent announcements by the Biden administration. So what will be the cost to the U.S.? So U.S. gets it of the pandemic. Uh, U.S. Uh, opens the restaurants, gyms, you know, all the service sectors uh, back to working. Is there still an economic cost to U.S. just because the rest of the world not vaccinated yet because we don't have a, a equitable global vaccine distribution? And there's actually it tur- turns out that there's a huge cost to U.S. because U.S. is part of the global trade and production network. How huge? In a scenario where rich countries, this is US, Europe, Japan, Canada, and uh, like vaccinate themselves by mid to end 2021, but emerging markets and developing countries uh, don't get to vaccinate their citizens uh, in 2021, then the worldwide cost is going to be 4 trillion. But the interesting point is 49% of that, almost 2 trillion Is going to be paid by rich countries. Not vaccinating the rest of the world, they are going to be paying half of the global cost, which is 2 trillion. And that's not peanuts. That's actually almost 3% of the rich countries' 2019 GDP, pre pandemic GDP.
1: Okay, 4 trillion is pretty huge. So how do we go about coordinating vaccinations globally?
0: We don't suggest you just use. 10% of your vaccines for old people and doctors and ship the rest, right? This is not what we mean by sharing or what we mean by equitable vaccine distribution. We highlight two points. We are talking about increasing the production of the vaccine. No country is going to, you know, ship any vaccine before vaccinating their own citizens, right? So we want to highlight the rich countries should invest in increasing the production, increasing the scale, capacity, solving the distribution problems. And in fact, there is an initiative for that.
1: She's referring to COVAX, an initiative aimed at accelerating the development, production and distribution of COVID-19 vaccines.
0: All the rich countries should invest in COVAX initiatives so that the vaccine production is going to be increased and it's going to be distributed in an equitable way across the world.
1: Thinking on a global level may seem daunting, but the fact is we live in a globalized world. The data used in this research spans 65 countries and 35 sectors operating both domestically and internationally. It covers the entire global trade and production networks. We're talking about everything from semiconductor chips and avocados to bicycle parts and manufacturing materials. But to put this in perspective, let's hone in on some specific areas.
0: Car production now stopping in U.S. because we don't have the chips, right? I mean, the other, uh, you know, retail uh, goods we cannot get because we don't have the semiconductors. Because this is how the world trade and production network is, right? Everybody is tied to each other. A good produced in one country cannot use inputs only from that country, right? This is not the world we are living in. We can talk about changing this, but the, the fact is you can't change this overnight. There is no way you can change this over a year. You cannot say... Okay, I am buying this, you know, steel as, as let's say U.S. construction from Brazil, but now Brazil cannot deliver in time and then uh, let me go to China. That is not possible in a very short period of time or saying I'm going to charge a higher price now because there is less chips. That's going to start happening, but not very quickly. But the costs are going to be realized very quickly. Any delays is going to give you economic costs, right? Normally if you have two weeks or three weeks shipping time and now it is six months here, that's going to have a huge economic cost there.
1: Access is another key word here. Without more global coordination, developing countries simply do not have the same level of access that rich countries do in that they don't have the capital to invest heavily in the early stages of production. Without a global distribution plan, of course certain countries are going to end up with a surplus while others are left grossly understocked. When
0: vaccines were developing, they couldn't do this, you know, pre-ordering and ordering from every company, which is pretty much what rich countries did, right? I mean, the reason why rich countries have so much right now is because before knowing which vaccine will work, they invested in all. Obviously, emerging markets and developing countries didn't have that type of luxury. Now, once uh, they know, okay, these are the vaccines are working and they want to put their orders, of course, then it's a little bit Late, right? They are late in the game. I mean, even even actually, Europe suffers from that, right? I mean, let alone emerging markets and developing economies. So there is nothing that they could have done better. They are they just have limited resources. But that's exactly our point. This is a multilateral issue. This is a problem that needs a multilateral solution. And rich countries, international organizations, bodies like G twenty, uh, they should be at the forefront of this, right? That's their responsibility, not just ethical, but, you know, it's an economical argument, right? It's actually in their best self-interest.
1: Any given country cannot recover on its own. Let's say demand recovers in the U.S., and so the U.S. is also able to export more goods. It actually doesn't have much of an effect if the rest of the world remains sick. With decreased international demand and no one to facilitate imports on the other side... The U.S. would lose export revenue while the other country faced import losses, a globally intertwined lose-lose scenario. And this is just an example as to why much of that $4 trillion cost would end up falling to the richer nations.
0: The key economic intuition why this type of network is going to amplify the economic costs globally is because in the short run, prices are going to be fixed. And also the network is fixed, right? So, so when you have the shock to demand or supply of any particular sector's output, that immediately trickles down through the entire global uh, network. Everything is like backordered, and it's going to be now more acute because demand is going to start normalizing, of course, in many countries. So, these type of uh, global supply chain constraints and concentrations can be amplified very quickly through that type of a complex network in the short run, when you cannot switch suppliers, when you cannot increase prices that quickly.
1: With these economic incentives and the moral implications as well, do you expect more investment going into global coordination?
0: I do expect uh, more coordination. I mean, my uh, motto is always hope for the best. And although you have to prepare for the worst, hope for the best and expect the best in this pandemic because we have to be on the optimistic side. When things are bad in your country, there is this urgency, of course, to fix that. Rich countries do know that. They are going to realize the importance of this once this urgency and panic in their own countries society a little bit. So I think they are going to cooperate and they are going to put up the investments as they know that this is in their best self-interest.
1: Join us next week for an exploration into alternative facts and the economics of media. Women in Economics is brought to you by UBS and the Center for Economic Policy Research, CEPR. It's hosted by me, Carly Sheridan, produced and sound engineered by Zoo Agency Berlin, with music provided by Artlist. Help us usher in this new era of economics by sharing the episode with a friend, relative, or colleague, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The featured persons and the Center for Economic Policy Research are not affiliated with UBS. This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS. UBS does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented.